0: That for a slice of fried gold? Are oh, You think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life.
1: I'll be back.
2: Just a fresh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticky paws off me, you damn dirty ape!
0: I'm sorry, Ben.
2: I, it's alive, it's alive,
0: it's alive. I guess everyone's a tad of the one scared Well, hello, and welcome to... Yeah, I'm recording. I didn't say record on my...
2: Yeah, he's been recording the whole time. Or, well, not the whole time, but like... <laughs>
0: Why else would I say well hello if I wasn't actually recording? I don't know. Sometimes Sometimes I'm talking I don't to you guys. Know. Sometimes I'm talking I don't to the people. What you're
1: doing, Gary?
0: All right. Well, hello to the people. Please forgive Justin. Welcome to Cinema Shock, the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. I am your co-host Gary Horn.
1: Hey, I'm co-host Justin Bishop. I knew we were recording the whole time. No, oh, it, it. it was a bit. <laughs>
0: that's
1: what it was uh and we're joined today by uh, a, a writer you guys may have heard of he also does some stand-up comedy he also c- hosts a uh, a podcast called computer resume it's a podcast that uh explores the entirety of star trek in chronological order uh it's a big hit on all the podcast mm-hmm. platforms uh welcome to the show mr todd a davis
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me on,
1: guys. I'm super happy for your success, Todd. I think I was looking at the
0: charts. It's like what number three now in uh Star Trek podcast hosted by Todd. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that sounds about the third, right. Third, the third most popular Star Star Trek podcast hosted by a Todd. Yep. Uh, welcome to the show, Todd. Anyway, yeah, hey if, guys, if that, doing, if that
2: guy, um, if that guy from Scrubs, the Todd, actually the starts Todd. A Star Trek, if he actually starts a Star Trek podcast, I'm fucked.
1: Oh, yeah. No, it would it yeah. be way better, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, well, anyway, guys, this is week three, right? Week three of our Toby Hooper series, The Tragedy of Toby Hooper. How are you guys enjoying it so far? Gary, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say you might as
0: well throw it to me on that one. Uh, yeah, I'm having a good time. I'm a fan yeah. of Toby Hooper's. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And more so than I even realized I had never seen it eaten alive. I knew I liked Texas Chainsaw, but it's one of those movies I like more every time I see it. I appreciate it more. And
1: uh even this week's movie, I'm I'm all right with. I've really enjoyed listening to interviews with Toby Hooper because he is the most chill human being on the planet. Nice, he's really just like he, he, he gives not a single fuck. Like you can just tell, like in every interview, he just like, doesn't want to be here. It's like, I'll talk about this, but I'm not going to be very enthusiastic about it. (laughs) I love it. I really love him. I think, but by all accounts, he's also like the sweetest dude. Everyone who's been on set with him. I mean, I know we, we talked about the people on Texas Chainsaw thinking he was kind of out there, but everyone else talks about how sweet he is and how, how nice of a dude he is. I was uh,
0: watching one today, as a matter of fact. That uh, you know, as as he gets older, that smoker's voice really starts kicking in. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, he. Uh, but somebody asked him about the Texas Chainsaw remake, and uh, I love he's so chill. Even like the joke, like the. So he says this thing, and the people are it's just like silent, like they're not sure if respectfully they should laugh or not. But what it is is they're asking him about the remake of Texas Chainsaw, and he's like. Yeah, I watched it. I, you know, there was, I guess the best way to tell you is there's a scene where the camera is following behind Jessica Biel and it's a close-up on her ass and, you know, it's Jessica Biel and I would pay for the ticket just for that shot, but... (laughs) 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 <laughs> everybody's just like kind of quiet and he's like but anyway the context <laughs> of it wasn't the same and I think that was its problem
1: <laughs> no, I was thinking,
0: all right Toby oh, that's kind of dig you I love him I love
1: him <laughs> so anyway so the success of Texas Chainsaw Massacre just to give you guys a little recap on some stuff we've talked about on the last two episodes uh, that success led to a three-picture deal with Universal Pictures for Hooper and his collaborator Kim Hinkle But that studio contract would not quite pan out the way that the filmmakers had hoped. First, as we discussed last week, they had to fulfill their agreement to make Eaton alive. But even after that, things never really panned out for them at Universal. And of course, with deals like the Universal one, just because you have a three-picture deal doesn't mean that they have to make three movies with you. They don't have to make any movies with you. They are not contractually obligated to actually do anything. It's basically like a first look thing where if you're going to make a movie, they, they get first dibs at it. And then they can either decide to go with it or to pass. And sometimes they can even, if they pass, you can even go to a different studio. It just depends on how the contract is. But uh, that's kind of what happened with them. And it that the contract did end up getting their feet in the door of Hollywood, though, uh, which is kind of what they were looking for. And it also left. It also led to a friendship with a very important collaborator, William Friedkin, who uh, we discussed a little bit last week
0: yeah this the sad part here is this is the last time that hooper and hinkle would work together was on eaten alive because they started off you know becoming friends and and they they tried together but you know when when eaten alive didn't do so well they, they'd keep trying for a bit by doing what you're supposed to do and not letting the film's failure distract you they tried to just focus in on working on other stories and they started showing some to even to William Friedkin, who, you know, like you said, they were really tight with, and they got lots of encouragement from universal execs during the time. Then, um, one morning Friedkin invites Hooper and Hinkle to the screening for his new movie sorcerer. And so they all attend in the afternoon with like literally the whole room other than them are just universal executives. So to hear Hinkle tell the story at the end of the screening, uh, that they're all attending. There was just utter silence. This is his quote, utter silence. No (laughs) one spoke. Everyone just filed out. It was so cold, just an utter disaster. So Billy Friedkin just kind of disappeared overnight, and we were left without any support there on the lot.
2: Sounds like one of my first times doing stand-up, Jesus.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he's just gone. Like, just immediately, William Friedkin's out. And this still didn't stop them, by the way. They they worked on, and they found a couple of properties and started pitching them to Universal. Hooper's favorite was based off a fairly unknown novel called First Blood. And uh, Hooper oh, and loved that That, that First Blood? That first
1: blood. <laughs>
0: and, uh, yes. I cannot imagine would, a
1: Toby Hooper first blood. Or maybe yes. I can't, I don't know. It probably would have been awesome.
0: It's interesting. It's an interesting idea, but it, it was definitely that first blood, the one that would later, you know, revitalize Sylvester Stallone for the rest of his you know, career. And uh, Hooper loved the story. He really wanted to adapt it, but he was not getting a response from the studio. According to him, quote, I didn't realize at the time that I'd already been pigeonholed as a genre director, Uh. This is when the realization hit that once Friedkin was gone, to quote uh, Joe Bob Briggs' obituary for Hooper, he said uh, their three-picture deal was now a zero-picture deal. Uh, the contract was just allowed to expire, and they were left out in the cold.
1: Yeah. So things were not looking great. So they, they, they had the disappointment of Eaton Alive, which, as we know, was not really the follow-up to their instant classic Texas Chainsaw that they wanted. And then they go through all this, like, you know, as many directors do, a bunch of hit and misses, things are not looking great. And uh, for Hooper or Hinkle, and I think Hinkle at this time moved back to Texas. I think he just, after their contract expired, he just left and went back to Texas. And I think he, he continued to maybe teach at University of Texas or something along those lines. But he's yeah, not really he, in the picture in Hooper's career from here. They on don't up. work
0: together. I think they stick together and try for a little bit longer. And then when this movie we're talking about today comes up, Basically, he tries to get Hinkle on, but they're pretty dead set. The studio is on the writer they've already had work yeah. out the script. And so they won't hire him. And then Hinkle ends up, uh, my understanding is he ends up working on junk stuff for a while. He, he actually had a story uh, in the uh, Texas Chainsaw article that Joe Bob Briggs works where he's like, I got one job where I had to adapt a novel. And so I adapted that novel into a screen or a a, a film. And then somebody, one of the producers, like took that screenplay I wrote and adapted it into a novel that they put out under a different name (laughs) <laughs> and like sold it that way, and I couldn't, and I didn't have the rights to it, and I couldn't do anything about it, except then they like basically offered him the job to adapt that novel into a screenplay later on, and he's like, What,
1: what the fuck is going on here? It's <laughs> <laughs> so strange. <laughs> and well, and he uh, you know, he doesn't just disappear, like he, he continues as like a producer, uh, even even up till now, mostly honestly, mostly producing. Texas Chainsaw related <laughs> properties. He actually right. directed part 3, The Next Generation or or the um Leatherface, right? That's that's that one. The the one with Matthew McConaughey.
0: He does uh he does Matthew McConaughey. The Next Generation. The that's next the generation. fourth Generation, right? Yeah. yeah.
1: So he did that and then he would produce the, all the remakes and everything and but you're right. You know,
0: I mean, early 2000s. At this time like Hooper did Fall in Love with LA. Like you can see that in all of his stuff like That he talks about it. He was enamored with the lights and the stars, and the, you know, just there was something about it that drew him to it. He was interested in it and just uh, liked the area. But uh, Hinkle had, he was, he was kind
1: of done and he was homesick. He wanted to get back to Texas. So Hooper starts prepping this low budget sci fi horror film called The Dark for a producer named Edward Montoro. Uh, This guy is, he's another exploitation movie huckster not unlike marty rustum who who produced eaten alive Montoro was responsible for releasing all kinds of like exploitation and b movies in the 70s and 80s stuff like day of the animals and grizzly you know these jaws ripoffs uh here's a fun side note i started looking into this guy because i don't know these exploitation producers are always super interesting to me uh because they're <laughs> usually just skeezy a lot of times or like they just have really interesting lives so in the mid 80s Montoro's production company was on the verge of collapse due to some poor financial decisions Mm -hmm. and some issues surrounding a film of theirs called Great White that came out in 1981 and uh, it was released internationally but when it tried to be released in the U.S. its release got blocked because the filmmakers were accused of plagiarizing Jaws because it's very much a Jaws ripoff then the the final film that he produced a movie called Mutant uh, did really poorly, and he had a pending divorce settlement that he was facing. So things are looking really bleak for oh, Montoro. So yeah. he embezzled a million dollars, over a million dollars, from his company's bank account and then vanished, never to be seen again. And to this day, nobody knows where he is. It's thought that he moved to Mexico and changed his name, but he disappeared. Uh, nobody even knows if he's still alive right really? now. <laughs> yeah. Just completely gone?
0: New podcast, so we're announcing our (laughs) spinoff.
1: Searching for Edward Montoro. (laughs) It'll be like that Richard Simmons podcast. (laughs) Uh, uh, Instead, though, we we end up at the end
0: uh, being like hollowed out packages for cocaine, just smuggling (laughs) over the border.
1: Of course, this has nothing to do with Toby Hooper. They did not work together, but I, I don't know. It was... I went down that rabbit hole and it was wild. And I thought that everyone else needed to know about that.
0: Well, yeah. side <laughs> note real quick though on that is just that you mentioned he also was behind Grizzly and I just watched Grizzly not too long ago. And that's as much of a Jaws ripoff as I've ever seen. Like it is literally Jaws yeah. in the forest. There's guys like every role like Hooper and Brody and Quint. Like there are those guys, but chasing a bear. Yeah. And it's just, Did you watch uh, Grizzly too? I haven't seen Grizzly 2 yet. I keep wanting yeah, to watch I, it. I just I forget about it. it. Yeah. And But anyway, I, I guess I, I was just thinking like when you said that about Great White and I'm like, what is it with people in this? It's not like, you know, how like you'll hear like the Nickelback songs are all the same and like they just have the same face and they're like just repeating <laughs> their success with the same chords or whatever. It's like, I don't know. I'm just trying to picture these guys in the movie studios being like. God damn it, why is this movie not working? Like we're, <laughs> we're using the same shit. People love this shit.
1: We saw it. <laughs> so Hooper ends up abandoning the dark after only four days of principal photography over disagreements with Montoro over what direction the film should take. And he was replaced by director John Bud Cardos, who's the guy behind the William Shatner classic, Kingdom of the Spiders. Uh, I, I say classic only semi-sarcastically because Kingdom of the Spiders is... <laughs> kind of awesome (laughs) not good but kind of awesome (laughs) you should Uh,
2: but we gotta put some air quotes around that yeah we'll
1: do a william shatner um movie like like his weird post star trek career yeah we'll do a series on that we'll call it holy shat or something and it'll be it'll be a big hit for us we have to. i don't know if you just came up with that on the spot but damn it that
0: needs to be a thing
2: (laughs) so great
1: uh so but the dark once it was released in 1979 was a disaster Uh, mostly because at the last minute, the producers, Montoro among them, decided that instead of being about a murderous child, because it was initially about this murderous child, maybe autistic, I don't know. uh, Instead of being this murderous child, it should be about a murderous alien. And they changed this once the movie was about to be done shooting. So they just added an eight foot alien into the finale and then went back to previous murder scenes and superimposed laser beams in them. (laughs) Okay. Here's what what (laughs) Roger Ebert had to say about the dark. Is This is without a doubt the dumbest, most inept, most madden- maddeningly unsatisfactory thriller of the last five years. Ooh. It's really bad. So bad indeed that it provides some sort of measuring tool against which to measure bad thrillers. Ooh. So here's the problem, though, this, is that makes
0: me want to see it more.
1: It really makes me want to see it, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, leaving the film, my point behind going into all that detail about a movie we're not talking about today is that leaving that was probably a good career move for Toby Hooper in the long run. (laughs) Like having having had done Eaten Alive, which did not go well, and following up with this movie might have just destroyed his career completely. But that still left the question, what was Hooper's true follow-up to TCM going to be? Because Eating Alive had not been it. I've, obviously, we talked about that. That was not <laughs> like quite the, the sophomore run that he wanted it to be. But then finally, in the summer of 1979, things started looking up for Hooper and he was finally given the chance to work on a film that might live up to his potential. That movie, it's the movie we're talking about today, Salem's Lot.
0: Ben Mears has been away too long. And now at last, he's come home. The men fought at Valley Forge. Daddy, come back.
2: Home to the childhood memories, to the old familiar faces, to a life unmolested by time. Home to Salem's Lot, a town too good to be true.
0: Something is happening, something terrible. You're not leaving Salem's Lot, are you? I'm not leaving. Don't you understand what's happening?
2: you
0: yes i do it's in the Marston house good evening stephen king the best-selling author of carrie and the shining takes you on a startling journey to salem's lot i'm sorry guys i was uh well you should be sorry todd um i was
2: gonna say excuse i was i was trying to
0: look up uh the dark on imdb and so that that just uh I, I will say if i have to do like the dark and it doesn't initially come up and then i have to click on search all title results and then finally <laughs> get there it's like page four of google search like you're like, well the dark you is also here? like
1: the most generic title for a movie of all time yeah yeah that's that, true. along with eating alive honestly so 1976 Brian De Palma's adaptation of the Stephen King novel, Stephen King's debut novel, Carrie, introduced audiences to the author's work. The film was a huge success, both critically and commercially. It made both Stephen King's and, honestly, De Palma's career and set off a string of bids for the next King book to be adapted. And at the time of Carrie's release, there was only one other option, and that was Salem's Lot, which was published in 1975. Uh, The book is... Significantly longer than than Carrie, at at nearly 450 pages. Uh, Carrie is like less than 200 pages, probably the shortest standalone novel that that King has ever written. Uh, But Salem's Lot, being so long, made it made adapting it much more difficult. So Warner Brothers would end up purchasing the rights to the novels, uh, but the length and complexity of the novel proved difficult to develop unlike carrie which primarily focuses on a single character uh carrie and then her mother and then a few friends in the high school you know uh salem's lot like a lot of other king works is about an entire community there's this it's a sprawling story with all these little side side stories and subplots and all this stuff that doesn't really honestly doesn't really lend itself to a movie so the question was how do you fit all of that into a two-hour movie that that's Kind of what Warner Brothers is going through for a couple of years on this, and Tooper, uh, Toby Hooper himself was even attached to the project kind of early on, working under under William Friedkin. Actually, William Friedkin was attached as a producer and was going to get Toby to do it, uh, but that didn't last very long. Of course, we'll we'll get to how he gets reattached here in a minute. But they were having trouble because a satisfactory script could never really be written because of the size of the book, and of course, four hundred fifty pages. Compared to, you know, Stephen King novels now is is on the shorter side, <laughs> but uh, but at the time, I mean, a four hundred fifty page novel is still is still a lot. When he was messing around with it, I saw stuff from him and said he
0: had seen like screenplays adapted down to like they would be like three hours, two and a half hours, something like that. He had seen it be toyed around with, but you know that it just got to this point of like, you know, when you are asking for three or four hours for a movie, which just for the reasons you outlined there, I mean, just because this is dealing with families and it's not doing it justice to, like, talk about a whole town's worth of people. Uh, you can't give every all the characters room to breathe if you're trying right. to give this thing down to an hour and a half or something. Because,
1: I mean, the story, the book is called Salem's Lot. It's not called, like, the vampire of Salem's Lot. It's about the town and the people in the town right. and the way that this evil presence is affecting all of them. Right. So how do you fit that into a movie? So as a result of this, these issues that they're having, trying to get this adapted, the project kind of bounced around to several different writers, including Larry Cohen, who had done It's Alive, and Sterling uh, Silifan, who had done Village of the Dam back in 1960. Uh, Directors were announced at several points during its development, including Larry Cohen as well, and George Romero. I think we actually uh, discussed Romero's involvement briefly way back in episode two, of this podcast when we talked about martin because remember oh, they yeah. um they offered it to him because you're like hey you did this other movie about a small town vampire so here's another uh, small town vampire story as you know hollywood tends to do yeah. yeah
0: yeah i remember uh some of the stuff i saw this time around on that were just like uh, similar issues like he he just you know he apparently dropped out like he just didn't think like people were gonna give it enough room to like well, make the actual movie
1: yeah, I think he ended up really leaving once it moved to television because he didn't think that the novel could withstand the restrictions of being Netflix. That's TV. true. Yeah, I did see and, that. And you know, and, and George Romero was coming at this point in his career. He would have been coming right off of uh, probably Dawn of the Dead. You know, right? So like an ultra gory movie, and then how am I going to go into working in television?
0: It's a weird yeah. dance that Hooper did with this this screenplay though, or this this property. Because uh, according to Hooper in like the commentary I was watching and stuff, when he first came to LA, he was courted, he said, by Universal and Warner Brothers. And he, of course, chose Universal. Um, Ollie, though, he says it was like Salem's Lot was something he was a fan of. And the book, the book. Yeah, the book. And um, the Universal execs during this time he was in Universal had initiated like helped introduce them to the property, like to to like him and Freakin to Salem's lot as being a possible thing, like making the right connections and so on. Uh, he and Freakin were like really into it. Uh, Hooper says he dug Salem's lot because he never cared for vampires before re- reading this book. And uh, he said he, he always got like Frankenstein, but he never understood Dracula. But in Salem's lot, Stephen King seemed to like capture how much of a monster the the vampire is as opposed to a story like Dracula. But anyway, Hollywood's a really shifty place. And he said, he just finally kept getting told, like some people in Universal set this up. And then later on, like mid-level execs in Universal would be like, this is not going to happen. Or not everybody is going to sign off on this. Like you're, it's just, it will just stay in limbo for forever. So he said, he just was like, at a certain point, you have to let it go and say, I got to move on. I got to move on and do what I got to do.
1: Yeah. Then we get a guy named Richard Kobritz who comes in. Richard Kobritz was a young producer who had just had success with a made-for-TV horror movie called Someone's Watching Me. Have you ever seen this movie, Gary? I have not seen this. Well, yeah, I mean, I know who it's by, but but I've never seen it. Yeah, It's directed by John Carpenter. It's actually the movie he made right before Halloween. He shot it right before Halloween, although it actually aired about a month after Halloween's initial release in, in November of 1978. But Someone's Watching Me had been a ratings knockout. Like it was like made-for-TV movies were very, very big in the 1970s. And there's a, there's a whole sub-genre you could go down uh, talking about made-for-TV horror movies of the 70s because it, it was a big thing. And Someone's Watching Me was very successful and Richard Kobricks was eager to repeat that success. So he came on to the kind of, at this point, stalled Salem's Lot project and he proposed that the made for tv format would probably work best for it because and when he said that he he's like you know we, what we need to do we need to put this on tv but we don't need to do it as like a made for tv movie like we did with someone's watching me this needs to be a mini series that runs for 4 hours so that you could really encompass the entire story it, 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 that's what the studio decided to go with and Cobritz now has to find a director and he starts screening horror movies looking for a director that kind of pops out. He was reportedly uh, really unimpressed with Phantasm, which had just come out.
0: Yeah, it's a bummer.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a bummer. I mean, can you imagine a Don Coscarelli um, directed Salem slot? It would be weird. Yeah. I mean, it I could, be d- I could, I feel like he's got the, I don't know, the
0: feel for something like that. Like it yeah. could work. Yeah. He also apparently like thought that Larry Cohen, which I, I thought was interesting. I just saw uh, something from Hooper at some point. I read that Hooper said he thought that the Larry Cohen script was garbage. Like he, like that—that <laughs> that was his quote. Like that's unfortunate. This is, this is, this i is mean, I—I
1: so, don't know anything about that script, but I'm a big Larry Cohen fan. But so once <laughs> once Cobert's watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre, he knew that like this is my guy. This is who we got to get to do this movie. So once again, Toby Hooper is involved in in this project, and at the time that the that Salem Slot is offered to him. Hooper was just on the verge of signing on to direct a low-budget quickie called the Guyana Massacre. And I don't know much about this movie. I tried to see if it had been made, and I I couldn't find any any evidence that it had. And I don't know for sure that it has anything to do with Jim Jones and the Jonestown Massacre, because that took place in Guyana. Uh, But I have to guess that it did, right? I don't know what else a movie about
0: (laughs) What well, lucky, be called. I watched the commentary and it 100% was about Jim Jones. And the it Jones was about Delmesmer. Jim Jones. Okay. Yeah, he, he talks about it a little, just saying that at this point he was in Rome and uh, there were producers there that were trying to make this movie. And yeah. he said that he got really uncomfortable actually reading the stuff they had down for like what they wanted to do. He said it was darker than dark, was his quote. And he uh, said he kind of didn't want anything to do with it, uh, which is fun coming from Toby Hooper.
1: this is too uh, dark for the guy who made the texas chainsaw massacre
0: what really sealed it for him though is he said then the death threats came like he said his agent kept calling and said you're getting death threats and so is everybody who's uh even close to touching anything involving this so he said i just had to get out of there as quickly as possible and Death, death threats from whom I I don't
1: know. Um, he didn't specify. Maybe but, I mean, a lot of people's family members died at Jonestown, so you know, okay. maybe they thought they were exploiting. I mean, they were. These, these were exploit Italian exploitation filmmakers. That's they were exploiting those people's deaths. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I was just gonna say, looking for him, Corbett's called, and yeah, uh,
0: and so yeah, he said that meeting was as that fantastic. was his out. <laughs>
2: yeah, and that it's, was his
0: out. It was as fantastic as any meeting he'd ever had because the guy like he's like i've seen this before here's my vision he said corbett's immediately was like yeah me too and uh was just like and it was just like a. he said he pitched it to him it's like this hitchcockian film language uh examples he gave were like characters walking towards the screen and their view shifts and then it goes into a pov shot and, uh the look of the marsden house with unfriendly angles kind of like the psycho house etc and uh So according to uh, Hooper, then Corvus was like, I kind of dig this. I got to make some calls. And uh, I I just thought this side story was interesting because now I just want to go to this place. He said there's this place called Musso and Franks in Hollywood. And I had never heard of this, but apparently a lot of directors and writers go there. And there's a a special booth in the back where you wait next to a phone um, while you're eating. And he actually read Salem's Lot again while he was sitting there and you just wait for the call to see if you got the job and uh huh. yeah and then that's
1: uh he got the call nice. and so he got it's just the a job. bunch of very anxious looking filmmakers sitting around a room <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah
2: now judy i'll have another cup of coffee i know it's my seventh just bring it
0: bring the coffee judy i just uh i, I thought that story was interesting just like uh it makes me want to go there and like us get a picture like in the booth that hooper would have waited in but uh Anyway, uh, he said that just to throw this in there, he said that Corbett's was absolutely the best producer he'd ever worked with. And he said that only time he'd ever intervene and he would sometimes, but it would be to add shots, which for Hooper, he says worked fine for him because he had never done TV before and it was a different medium and and it's not a style he's familiar with, but he he had a quote in that commentary that I liked. He just said, if if all of my producers had been like Richard Corbett's, I would have had a blessed
1: life and that's awesome so Hooper signs on to do Salem's Lot after this meeting with Corbett's and he he signed on knowing that it was probably going to be a pretty difficult shoot Uh, and it would prove to be the biggest challenge of his career to date he he had just 37 days to shoot he 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 had about six weeks of prep time but he had just 37 days to shoot a four-hour screenplay that featured more characters and more locations than Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Eaten Alive combined. And 14 of those days would be spent shooting on location in the small Northern California town of Ferndale. And the the miniseries had a budget of about $4 million, which is a huge sum compared even to Eaten Alive, which if you remember itself was about 10 times the budget of Chainsaw. Um, To put that in perspective, the cost of the Marston House, the Marston House was a mock-up exterior and then an interior set, Uh, The the cost to build the Marston house was about the same for the entire budget of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Wow. Holy crap. Which
0: is crazy, yeah, to think about.
1: And the Marston house had to be built because they could not find a suitable house, one that resembled the house from the book in this little town of Fernsdale. So they essentially built a facade. Uh, Production designer Mort Rabinowitz he designed it. It's this facade that goes over like an already existing house that's up on the hill so that it had that looming look, you know, over the town that they wanted. Uh, And then to make matters even even more complicated, when Hooper was shooting this, he had to create two versions of the film. One had to be suitable for network television and it had to be able to be given a pass by standards and practices at CBS. And the other, with more graphic violence, would be created for a theatrical release in Europe. So he's essentially making two different versions of the same movie at the same time, which is kind of nuts to think about. Yeah. That yeah, you have to know that there's a way to
0: edit this into two different movies.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and one is much shorter than the other Well, one. One's an, over an like an hour shorter than the other one. Right. So the rush production schedule required Hooper to knock out something like 30 to 40 camera setups every single day. That's, Insane. I mean, that, that that's a pace that <laughs> that uh, that kind of pace would be hectic for even the most seasoned of directors. And this is the guy who's making his first studio movie, essentially, because Eaten Alive was a, a pretty small p- production. And this is his first time working for like a big Hollywood studio.
0: The crazy part with Hooper is like uh, to hear him talk about it is that it's a thing I don't have because I get like I... I have trouble compartmentalizing things. And so I was I was watching some stuff of him talking about how he get got through some of these studio things that he's like, you know, I just don't... He's like, I have a list, but I'm always good at being like, I don't know what's on the rest of that list. I have this thing I have to get done. And if I'm looking at that, I can't pay attention to this. So all of my focus immediately goes on complete this as quickly and best as possible. And he's like, mm-hmm. and then we just move. And so like, he, he you know, he's like, I've, I've probably learned sometimes throughout when I get in trouble for like, you know, things pushing against time, but uh, he, you know, he, he, he has this ability to, it seems like to, to focus in on what he's supposed to get done that house. He, he talks about the Marston house that they, so they had like somebody in uh universal or somewhere or Warner brothers, like, come on and be like, we've got this perfect spot on top of the hill. It's going to be amazing. And then they go and look at it. And then he's just like, there's, there's a house here. <laughs> and so like, <laughs> we thought like you found the perfect spot where we could have a house here. <laughs> and now there is a house <laughs> here. And so he said, somebody had like one of the production TV says this goes in and there's a family like living in the house And he goes in and convinces the family to let them build the Marston house over their house. And he says, so they do, you know, they build the outside of the Marston house, everything you see, the interior shots, some of the stuff they do. He's like, the whole time we were filming, and she says was like three or four days of the filming, I think. But he says, there's a family, like living in a house inside of the house we're shooting in. And uh, he's like, and the weirder part is never saw him like they never came out, never, like you never saw anybody going out or leaving or anything like that. They were, they were just probably there afraid. They, were,
1: <laughs> they didn't want to mess up a shot. <laughs> yeah.
0: But so, yeah, I don't, that's, that's just crazy. And, and, you know, with Hooper, the other thing is, is too. we've learned with Eaton Alive and with Texas Chainsaw, he seems to be like really uh, one of these guys, he, he has a vision in mind. So he's been like, normally Telling people to just trust me on this, like let's film this stuff, and he knows he can fix or like get it together in editing. But uh, he really credits a guy, uh, Carol Sachs, in this one, who is a uh, was the editor for uh, Salem's Lot, and says that this guy was just incredible, like double time, like what he'd ever been able to do, and just wow. super fast and like cut that down. He give because he he died right after this.
1: Oh, because
0: no. uh he also was doing a side project like going into nuclear plants and filming in there with like a 16 millimeter camera and he would like run into areas where you're not supposed to be and like film stuff and oh, uh, shit yeah, <laughs> yeah. he's like he was sick this whole time and he was dying and he just said dying of like radiation poisoning right <laughs> it's like yeah. he didn't say specifically radiation poisoning so i don't want to misquote him but he just said
1: he was he was sick and died he, shortly he, after but That's crazy. Yeah. So Kes is the main villain in this film, uh, which is Barlow's henchman, Mr. Straker, is a guy who's probably the film's most prestigious actor, Mr. James Mason. Uh, He's a legendary actor. James
2: Mason. Thank you, Todd.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I like the idea of James Mason just saying his own name. (laughs) Anytime somebody, (laughs) anytime he
2: hears it, he.
0: James he just has to say, that's actually i wish we'd have thought of that as a bit beforehand <laughs> I,
2: you guys have no idea cat is furious at me because i watched this movie on friday and i've been walking around saying things as james mason around the house he's like she doesn't love re- it go record the damn podcast already god get it <laughs> out james of your james mason system.
1: if uh you're not familiar with him he's a legendary actor he'd, he'd appeared in films Uh, by the likes of alfred hitchcock he's in north by northwest Uh, stanley kubrick's lolita and his his wife uh whose name is clarissa k mason she was actually cast in the film as well she plays uh, marjorie glick in the film
0: yeah apparently everybody loves this guy uh which i mean why wouldn't you he's he's brilliant but uh, Hooper talks a lot about his dark sense of humor too, that was really unexpected because he's like classical, you know, it seems like. But, yeah, uh, yeah, he's he 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 <laughs> loved the idea that he seemed to relish a darker role, like just these, like the points in the movie where he just seems to have a lot of smiles and he's pleased with himself <laughs> and uh, this sort of thing. He Say says, even to it,
2: the master, and
0: Hooper has a weird sense of humor, so I think they clicked on that because he even tells the story about what's uh Mason's having to drive a car and he's taking a turn but he'd never driven the car before and he cuts it close and he bounces off the curb in the shot and they're like well maybe we should re redo this and Mason's like well my boy if we can't then you could always just say there was a baby there
2: <laughs> 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 oh, <shit. laughs> uh, so
1: opposite James Mason as the film's hero was David Soul, who had played Hutch from the original uh, Starsky and Hutch TV series. And man, David Soule also has a very interesting background. He he had started, before his success as an actor, uh, he had gained attention by appearing on the Merv Griffin show. This was a couple, uh, about a decade before this movie, late 60s. Uh, He was on the Merv Griffin show as a singer in a mask called The Covered Man. He would come out and sing with a mask on because he was like, I want people to know me for my music and not as you know, because of what I look like. Um, and then that same year, this is about 1967. It's the I mass see. Singer
0: before the mass Singer.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that same year, he made his TV debut in Flipper, you know, the Flipper TV series, and then signed yeah. a contract with Columbia Pictures, which was followed by a lot of guest appearances and TV shows, and in, which included the second season episode of Star Trek called The Apple. Nice. <laughs>
0: okay. Okay. Yeah, well, so that's not the, the that's not the only one we'll get out of this. But toss yeah. it to
2: Flipper, <laughs> old boy. But his his Here TV
0: credentials definitely helped him get this job. I mean he he was no like, Starsky and Hutch was huge. it Was a big deal Yeah, and, he was a star. Uh, yeah. So he had TV star power. Uh, Hooper says he was great. You know, but like it would definitely be a curse sometimes because like this was the first time he'd ever worked with somebody that when they're in dale walking from a set to a trailer like he's walking along with him and trying to talk with him about something and they're like mobs of people like trying to get to this guy and uh he was like this is the first time i've worked with like like that kind of celebrity on wow. set it was just uh it was it was really crazy
1: and other members of the cast included uh bonnie bonnie bedelia who is uh john McClane's wife in diehard yeah. yeah, she is. She's, <laughs> she's also a Colkin,
0: by the way. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she's, she's a Colkin?
1: Yeah, she's a Colkin. Wait, in what way?
0: She's a, she's she's like the sister of Macaulay and Kieran's
1: She's a, She's their aunt. Yeah. yeah, she's their aunt. Interesting. So anyway, she plays Susan. Uh, Lance Kerwin plays Mark Petrie. Kenneth McMillan, who uh, is in David Lynch's Dune. is the only other thing I know him in. He, he's the constable. He's really fun in this. Uh, Julie Cobb is Bonnie. Fred Willard as Larry Crockett. I love Fred. Seeing Fred Willard, Willard. God,
2: the- he looks like a kid.
1: Yeah,
0: oh, he has, So uh, no,
1: I've been watching Modern Family, and like he,
2: uh, we have two.
0: <laughs> yeah, and he's <laughs> he on he there. Is, he yeah. is. He he plays uh, Phil's dad. So he's in a, he's in several episodes of Modern Family, and but but by the last season of Modern Family, you can see him getting more old and frail. You know. Yeah, you can, I remember
1: he, seeing him in that Netflix sketch comedy series that came out last year, and he was. Looking pretty, pretty old at that point. Yeah, but here I, he had he was just like
0: just starting out. Like he had done like some I mean, he did dud stuff. But uh, I, I think Hooper said that he had uh, Corbett's had seen him in this show Fernwood tonight,
1: and uh, he was he was. Oh on yeah, there. I've, I've watched clips of that show. There's a really great. Um, it's like a it's like an interview show, right? Like a kind of yeah late night, yeah, yeah, talk show kind of thing. Right. Um, there's a really great interview where they him and the other guy who's in his co-host interview Tom Waits, and it's pretty hilarious. That's nice. awesome. <laughs>
0: yeah, he said he saw him on there and just like he he knew like right when he saw me, he's like he would be perfect as like this real estate, like skeezy guy. Like he, he just yeah. he just seems like he'll have it. And uh Hooper, by the way, says that he Fred Willard and David Sewell actually became like lifelong friends. Like they were friends for years up until the end. So, uh, but yeah, I just thought that was kind of cool. Julie Cobb for just so we could add to this. uh, She plays Yeoman Leslie Thompson in Star Trek, the original series Mm -hmm. uh, in the episode by any other name. Um, Also season two. Yeah. She's the first red skirt
1: to die. Yeah, the A- only time. in the original series, yeah, that's true. Yeah, actually, the, the only, yeah, she's the only ex husband is shirt. James
0: Cromwell, yeah. uh, who is later on in Star Trek, you know. Yeah. So
1: and she she later became known as one of the stars of Charles and Charles. so she that's like kind of her main claim to fame, but um, yeah, she's another Star Trek alum, Oda Weasel or whatever his real name was, and, and
0: Ava. Uh, they were actors, uh, Elisha Cook Jr. and Mary or Marie Windsor. And they were cast uh, together as husband and wife, as a reference to the Stanley Kubrick movie *The Killing*, in yeah, 56. which they're
1: both in. Elijah Cook Jr. is also in um, *Rosemary's Baby*. Oh yeah, that's right. One of the he's one of the Satanists. Yeah, yeah. I, and I love the cast of this movie. I, I, this is the first, I think. This is really the first film. I mean, it's only the second filmed adaptation of a Stephen King novel. but This is the first one that has that like Stephen King, New Englander spirit, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, Because most of the small towns in King's books, like Castle Rock, uh, Jerusalem's Lot, or it's just called Salem's Lot in the movie, but Jerusalem's Lot in the book is filled with like a bunch of kind of working class, like blue collar types, you know, thick main accent, especially like the constable. He's really laying that accent on. I love it. Uh, it, He's second only probably to all, what's his name, Judd from the original... uh, Pet Cemetery, right? <laughs> right. Well, you know, one of the
0: things that that Hooper seems to respect about King, and I think you can tell from this that he he really does respect Stephen King and what he's doing. But the he he talks in some stuff I've seen about how Stephen King didn't take time, like wherever he grew up at, and whatever he was, and like how he developed his writing style. He never took time to like explain himself or like why. I'm trying to think of the words he used, but he was just like, things just are the way they are. And there's no apologies. There's no like extra explanation needed. It's just like things work because he says they work. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and and just, he he really appreciated that about Stephen King. And I think you get that from, from this thing, this like new England town, it's set. These people just take on these roles and, uh, and, and, you know, there was some discussion about, you know, if you see Texas Chainsaw to eaten alive to this movie, Toby Hooper almost seems you, you might not, I mean, to me know that this is the same director. Oh you yeah. Know. Yeah. It's stylistically <laughs> very different. Yeah. And, and he, and I've seen interviews with him talking about that, where it's just like, he just says, like it was in that spirit of the Stephen King thing that we just did this one because we're honoring what's on the page and, and, it's that it's like the most well-oiled cast I've ever had (laughs) and like the budget and the he's like I don't know he's like maybe there's there's parts of it maybe there's the fire lit under my ass for like the speed at which we got to get it done or whatever he's like maybe there's different parts of my vision coming out he's like but I don't he's basically saying like I don't know that that was ever intentional it just circumstances were different so like a different thing happened
2: yeah, yeah, I saw that uh, James Mason insisted on oiling the cast himself. Right. Which <laughs> seems like know.
0: something he'd request. Like, that's, yeah, that's a yeah. part of his. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's
2: part of I mean, that's soundtrack. That's in his writer. Yeah. It's, you know, <laughs> and really it adds to the project. You know, it just, <laughs> the whole vibe changes and, you know, you really hit your stride once you're oiled. Well, to clarify
0: <laughs> what he's talking about there is that the, uh, you know, this is like, these are working actors. These are all experienced, like, steadily working actors as opposed to every other movie that toby hooper's ever done up until this point where it's been like thrown together cast of people just hoping to get a job
1: yeah yeah right and and he strikes oil so, uh, sometimes you know with with strikes oil
2: <laughs> but was it was like, say, uh, <laughs> did you know james mason actually drilled for the oil himself
1: <laughs> but like someone like uh, uh, robert england you know you get lucky and right. Find someone yeah. who is looking for a job who's also really, really good. But in this one, yeah, he's got all these great little like they're character actors, but they are mostly character actors who've worked in, in television. Well, it in the live, not to take away from those people,
0: but those were also people he like grew up idolizing or that they, they sure, you know, yeah. but their careers were like on the other side, I guess. Yeah.
1: And I like that the the length of this, because they did go with the mini the miniseries route, they're able to let these little side stories breathe because the, the, the side stories in this are pretty compelling. uh You've got like uh George uh, Zunza's character. who's he, trying to catch his wife cheating with her boss. You know, that's a fun little side story. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. Intense. It, it adds like a different layer of intense. It adds a different layer of intensity. It adds, it adds a little bit more friction and it adds color to the story and, and kind of fleshes out this town. But it also kind, it also factors into the A plot of the movie because he gets a couple of other guys to take his route, take his truck to pick up Barlow's crate. And then one of them becomes a pretty important vampire later on in the story, but it also kind of speaks to the idea that's, I, I guess, kind of further explored in the book, but a little bit in the movie that there's something truly wrong in this town. Like uh, there's like a rotting heart at the center of this town. And and it's not, it could be because of this kind of inherent evil that Ben Mears talks about that sort of inhabits the Barlow the Marston house. Mm. Uh, You know, I mean, granted that that's a, that's an interesting question for the movie to raise. Cause yeah, there are lots of small towns that don't have a vampire living in the middle of them where spouses cheat on each other, you know? So is it a result (laughs) of that? Or is it just like human nature? You know, it's, it's really an adds an interesting element to the movie.
0: Yeah. Like how much evil in this whole thing is because of the actual vampire that showed up or Or is it just because
1: people are just, generally kind of shitty and then casting the role of the uh, Nosferatu like master vampire Kurt Barlow was an actor by the name of Reggie Nalder and this guy is incredibly interesting uh N- Nalder was an Austrian actor he got his job he got his start kind of working in cabarets originally in Austria but then he moved into uh, cabarets in Paris in the 1930s but he's most well known for his work in Hitchcock's 1956 version of the man who knew too much, and as Barlow and Salem's Lot, these are kind of his most high-profile uh, movie gigs. This guy, also, like, he was he,
0: also in Star Trek: The Original Series at one point.
1: He was, yeah. He is in um, another season two episode <laughs> called Journey to Babel. He played an Andorian ambassador.
0: I guess there was oh, just he like got a the blue. Thing he got where the blue it's like, if you're on TV yes. right now, we got <laughs>
1: jobs for you. Just
0: like we'll just keep moving
1: you <laughs> around. Yeah, but. This guy you start looking into his past and like he's kind of purposely keeping his a lot of his past a secret. It's very, I don't know if, I don't know why uh but it's it makes makes him an interesting character to me just because like he's so mysterious. And mafia ties? Uh well, he's in Austria, so probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Did I Oh, go ahead. One of the things Did you hear that, that
2: Aust- it- Austrian mafia, Justin Bishop in Greenville, South Carolina, doesn't think you're shit.
1: <laughs> yes, do something. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the parts of his past that's shrouded in mystery is the source of these burns that scarred the lower third of his face. Uh, he's If you look at him without makeup on, from like his mouth down, is pretty badly burned. And it's a feature that gave him a very distinct look, obviously, and pretty much guaranteed that he would always be cast as a villain. And it gave him the nickname, the face that launched a thousand trips. And I do not know what that means. What does <laughs> that
0: name mean? I don't know, but that's what he's known as. I guess you'd have to ride it to find out.
2: Um, <clears throat> it's a horrible hor- uh, horrible, James Mason oiling accident.
1: Um, and in the years between his appearance in The Man Who Knew Too Much in Salem's Lot, he appeared in movies like the Manchurian candidate. He was actually in the Manchurian candidate at the request of Frank Sinatra and he's in Dario Argento's uh, the bird with the crystal plumage. So the guy's worked in with some really cool filmmakers. Nice. Yeah. He, Mm. he, he's so he's, he just
0: looks like uh, even Hooper's just like, Oh, he just immediately looked like Nosferatu. Like just looks like a vampire. Yeah. (laughs) It's just, that's, that's easy uh, to, to use this guy. I did find the old quote from him that I thought, uh, it, since he's passed away, we'll honor him with a quote that, that aged well, and that's not sarcasm. Uh, this is back from, I, I don't even remember what year this was, but this is well before anybody would have thought this same thing. He said, I hate working with Bill Cosby. He is a pig. I met him in Rome where I did an episode of I Spy. Bill Cosby is rude, arrogant, and very untalented. He walked right by me on the set as if I was a piece of furniture. I tried to be polite, but he made it impossible. Wow. I sort of like, wow, you know, if there you, you were around now, <laughs> you, would have, you would have seen your uh, your, uh, your thoughts revealed on the public stage. And so uh, just to well, pass that on to you, Reggie Nalder.
1: In order to play Barlow, Nalder had to emote under this heavy makeup that took like two hours to apply every single day. And when he talks about, he, he was interviewed about making this movie, he said, Uh, quote the makeup and contact lenses were painful but i got used to them i like the money best of all
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah he said uh you know hooper described he was like it was just funny like he was he was he said he was always good spirits and all of that stuff but yeah just said there were so many like prosthetics going on with that guy just the i like you mentioned the contacts but the the nails he said that like he would just be in the middle of trying to do something serious and like his nails would fall off or something like that. Like, <laughs> it would just be like he was like, he was always losing nails. Like and, uh, <laughs> so that was like a, a running gag on the set.
1: Well, the makeup effects were created by makeup artist, Jack Young, whose previous credits had included the brood and apocalypse now. And those were actually just his like most recent credits. Those are the movies he made like right before Salem's lot, but Jack Young had been working since like the late 1930s as a makeup artist. He'd done movies like uh, Murders in the Rue Morgue and Walking Tall. In fact, his first movie that he ever worked on, he was uncredited. But the first movie that Jack Young ever worked on as a makeup artist was The Wizard of Oz, where he applied the makeup to uh, the Wicked Witch makeup to Margaret Hamilton.
2: Wow. That's That's a little movie
1: to get your start on.
2: Yeah. Ah, A little bit of cinema history. Like so, legendary cinema history.
1: Yeah. And with these glowing contact lenses, uh, fangs, and this skull-like headpiece, the visual style of Barlow, I think, remains pretty iconic. But it was also one of the film's biggest divergences from its source material. See, the, if, I don't know if you guys have read the book. I haven't read it in many, many years. So I'm by no means. haven't. I mean, I looked it. up notes to find the differences. But Yeah. yeah. But it's generally the same story as King's novel, but it does take a lot of liberties with the material, with a lot of the characters being combined or sometimes deleted altogether, uh, as have some of the novel subplots. And Richard Kobritz was responsible for a lot of this. He added several changes to the script. The script was by Paul Monash. Uh, one of Kobritz's big changes was transforming Kurt Barlow from this cultured, and completely human-looking villain into a speechless, demonic-looking vampire. When he was explaining this, and there's a really great uh, issue of Fantastique magazine that came out right around the time of this movie that the entire issue is basically devoted to Salem's Lot. And in talking to them, he said, we went back to the old German Nosferatu concept where he is the essence of evil and not anything romancy or smarmy or, you know, the rouge-cheeked widow-peak Dracula. I wanted nothing suave or sexual because I just didn't think it had work. We've seen too much of it. The other thing we did with the character, which I think is an improvement is that Barlow doesn't speak. The reason he gives for not having Barlow speak in this version as opposed to the book is he, he says that like whatever voice you would give to Barlow, it would come across as either silly. Uh, like if you did like a Dracula voice, you know, like a Bella Lugosi voice, it's going to be kind of silly. Or if it's going to sound like something that's been done before. Like they toyed with the idea of, you know, doing like, uh, like, like Reagan and the exorcist, like that demonic voice. But, you know, they're like, hey, yeah, you've seen that, it's been done.
2: in hell. <laughs> no i'm glad you went there yeah thanks so <laughs> thank you happy Mr. to make President. my contribution fellas. <laughs> so, they,
1: <laughs> so they ended up making the straker character a more important component of the story instead of having the vampire speak for himself and a lot of king fans they don't really like like hardcore stephen king fans didn't like that change in barlow and i, I mean i can kind of give them that it is a very different version of the character but To me, I think that just like with Kubrick's version of The Shining, you kind of have to view the movie as a separate entity from the book and judge it on its own. Like Hooper's Barlow is very different from this like German count character that he is in the book, but it's an iconic movie character. Like that that visual is striking even, you know, we're four decades beyond. And I think it looks, it just looks cool. And that first time that he pops up, that's a hell of a jump scare. It's Mm -hmm. really good. Mm -hmm. It's really well done.
0: Yeah, I think the only other changes they made for the book are probably some uh, subplot involving uh, molestation or uh, kid orgy that producers are like, God damn it, Steve, chill.
1: There is no kid (laughs) orgy in this. Uh, (laughs) James
2: Mason was like, I'll get the oil.
1: I'm just saying, why don't you guys told it down a little
0: bit? It'll give us so much of a shit about sticking completely to the source material. Sometimes <laughs> like sometimes there's things you don't want to portray on screen. Just yeah. Fucking drop it.
1: Uh, some but Some things just work better in a, in a movie exactly. than they work in a, in a book or vice versa. Another well, uh, change that Cobert's made was having the final confrontation with Barlow in the cellar of the Marson houses in the book. It's an Eva Miller's boarding house where Ben Mears is staying but they thought that they're like, you, you know, if you're making a movie where you, you've got to have the confrontation with the main villain in like his lair, you know, which makes a lot of sense, honestly. Yeah. And then they also yeah. moved Susan's death to the climax of the film to give the it kind of more of an impact. And as Cobert said, give the movie more of a snap ending.
0: I think Susan's death really occurred in die hard where she appeared with that hairstyle because she was, <laughs> her hair here was so much better. I don't oh, know yeah, why yeah. the style in die hard was ever a thing, but I think my mom terrible. had that hairstyle. I think a lot of people's moms have that hairstyle. So <laughs> yeah. it's uh it's just, it, it is what it is. I will say the thing is with, with the character, I think one of the things that Steve that Stephen King did in Salem's Lot that it appears that Toby Hooper got a lot out of was that Salem's Lot apparently kind of portrayed Barlow as more of a monster than human. And so, like, Dracula, like, danced on that edge and that sort of thing. So, like, it seemed like Hooper was more in favor of the Nosferatu style, too, and Corbett's as well. Um, Stephen King, like, gave like he seemed to be able to portray that in the book, but they felt like on screen you had to show it as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Sometimes it's harder to, to sh- you, you have to visualize it because there's not all this internalization that you get in a book. Exactly. Like um, I, I found this uh, quote from dance macabre
0: from uh, Stephen King uh, about the book he said, uh, this is his quote. I decided I wanted to try to use the book partially as a form of literary literary homage So my novel bears an intentional similarity to Bram Stoker's Dracula. And after a while, it began to seem to me what I was doing was playing with an interesting, to me at least, game of literary racquetball. Salem's Lot itself was the ball and Dracula was the wall I kept hitting it against, watching to see how and where it would bounce so I could hit it again. As a matter of fact, it took some pretty interesting bounces. And I ascribe this mostly to the fact that While my ball existed in the 20th century, my wall was very much a product of the 19th. I thought that was such a Stephen King quote. It is. (laughs) is. And I thought it was worth reading though, just so we give some credit to Stephen King. Like, uh, Here's Stephen King's analysis of what he was trying to do with Salem's lie. Back to what we were saying. Yeah. I think Hooper and Corbett's really wanted to portray this thing as like, you've only got so many, so much time and like people can bitch all they want to fuck man they got four hours here or yeah three hours or whatever it is to work with making this story works so get cut them some slack that like if you want this to be a film that you can watch uh you gotta wor- work within the primary sure we all work wish that people would just throw money at your favorite story and make it work however you wanted but like like you said like with kubrick you're trying to make it For the screen, I don't know. I I think with this one, especially, I got like more of appreciation for that. That I'm like, all of these characters, I'm like, I get it. There's probably like some more depth to these characters, but this this has plenty of depth to these characters that it uses. And I'm trying to think of the wording, but they 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 had it together on like who they used and how they used them.
1: Yeah, it was it was was well thought out the adaptation. I think that there is one glaring change for me, and that's the much smaller role that Father Callahan plays in the film. That's uh, he's, true, yeah. He's, Callahan he's is a pretty major character in the book. And it and his character plays a lot into these themes of of faith in the book. Mm-hmm. And he was an important enough character in that. And, and he's also like, he's a very complex character. He's a priest, but he's also, uh, he suffers from, from being an alcoholic. But he was an important enough character that he ended up being a main fixture in King's Dark Tower series later on. Like he appears in multiple dark series. Uh, dark tower series books as a pretty a very important figure actually but here he's like he's kind of a non-entity like they go see the priest at one point and then old barlow pops his head up and the priest you know is kind of out of the story at that point like he's he's barely in it you know what
0: i think probably happened there and, I, and this is speculation i have no idea but if you, you like asked me to tell you immediately probably what it was is that the, people didn't want to touch religion that much in in the 70s like they were
1: very probably true i mean it's at least on network tv because you know this is the exorcist has already happened um, yeah, of, yeah yeah on you're network
0: right tv you're you know network television are you going to really test uh your faith in god versus the vampire guy right and, right. Uh, and lose <laughs> and, yeah uh, and that that probably wouldn't go over too well uh it, it's the same with like i mean you know he, he talks about with uh fred bullard the, the scene where you know he's cheating and uh, he gets the shotgun on his chest and like moved up to his head, his head and and I think that that's like a decently intense scene. Yeah, and yeah. um, and 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 very, I don't know. I love the dialogue there even too. Where it's like, "See how much self control you have? <laughs> like, imagine like if you just apply." <laughs> you know, he was just basically it was like it was funny. You're right now. You've got so much. But uh, apparently in the book, it's like the shotgun's in his mouth, and right. uh, they were Can't like, sure they do "Oh, <laughs> all right, yeah. let's let's not get crazy." And then, like Cooper's <laughs> just kind of like in the couch Like, I mean, although like the gun's like pointed at his head, like it blow his fucking head off, <laughs> like it's. But you know, in the book, he was like, "I felt like it'd be more intense, like in his mouth."
1: But you know, what are you gonna do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The filming on this ran from July to August of 1979 with Kobritz's blessing and this Gary kind of alluded to this earlier but Hooper was able to do something that a lot of television directors at the time didn't do which is to give it some film style. In essence what, what I mean is that he shot Salem's lot as he would a theatrical movie using like film grammar. Not like a TV show, not like just these boring shot, shot, shot. It's like he's using some true film grammar here that you did not at the time. We take it for granted now, but at the time, that's not something you were seeing in a made-for-TV movie or in TV at all.
2: You mentioned taking this for granted. You know, in, in case someone's listening doesn't really get the fact that like, hey, like TV and film are, you know, walk closer sometimes even hand in hand nowadays but like the tv and film world were very separate back then and oh absolutely yeah and there wasn't stuff like there wasn't stuff like streaming services like netflix where if you had a big long series you could do you know three four six episodes and wrap it all up this was kind of this was kind of still a new thing
1: oh yeah absolutely the the decision to treat salem's lot like a film paid off when the miniseries aired on November 17th and 24th, 1979, it was a, a ratings juggernaut. Uh, critics loved it and audiences loved it. Audiences found it genuinely scary. And in the years following its broadcast, like it has continued to be successful and it's gained a big cult following. People love this movie. Even to this day, for a made-for-TV you know, miniseries to still be being talked about 40-plus years later is, is kind of staggering.
0: Well, and, and yeah, like, like you mentioned, I mean, it's shot like a film you would never know. I I think you can still throw this on right now and you would never know. This was like a made for TV movie. I don't think. Except for the little commercial break. Yeah. Okay. You're right. You're right. right. There are are those like weird pauses in between it and stuff like that. But like Todd said, I mean, I mean, it's important to know that, that, that this is a different time. I mean, this is a time where like, you know, the, the Beatles fucked shit up like a decade before, you know, like they were, uh, you know, you don't throw, you don't throw extreme violence and vampire. You want mama and daddy to be able to watch along with the kids in the living room. They're still not expecting this to get wild, like too wild, like Texas chainsaw wild or something like that. (laughs) You know, they're not expecting the exorcist on screen, like for national television, this is a, a unique thing, so he's having to work within these confines, but yeah man, I watched this movie and I think it, it feels it still feels cinematic like it, it, it does it it definitely feels,
1: has it, feels that. it does I mean there are moments where you get a, some production uh quality that feels a little TV showish you know every now and then, but it's it's not in the way it's shot. it's honestly because of it's it's got TV lighting a lot of times. I think is the big thing to me is that a lot of times, it, it, which is a little more flat and mm-hmm. a, l- a little less cinematic, but Hooper still moving the camera and editing it the way that you would a movie. And I, I think this in many ways sets the stage for future King novels and their adaptations. Uh, the, the miniseries model would become a trend for a lot of King novels like It and The Stand. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, his, his big long stuff like that lends itself hell even the langoliers a short story uh was turned into like a two-part miniseries and honestly the, the less best. said about the langoliers the better <laughs> the movie yeah that Night
0: flyer one with the vampire yeah. with like there's the... some really bad ones uh but there's, <laughs> it's still happening
1: because i mean i used mean, to, the...
0: to rent anything for the video store that said stephen king on it. yeah
1: i mean the stand <laughs> just got redone on cbs all access as a yep. miniseries
0: well, yeah, where I was even going with like that that difference is is like right now we can go to CBS All Access and we can watch Star Trek Discovery and somebody drops a fucking F bomb and my old ass is like, can you say fuck on Star Trek? Like <laughs> yeah. can you just say fuck? It's like I don't think I don't I don't think you can do that. And, so, and I am I am not a prude, I don't think.
1: We make jokes about Star- Pornhub. hub. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it, it's funny that we we discuss you know the filmic style of this movie, which it does have, but it is kind of hard to see the Hooper style that we got with like Texas Chainsaw and Eaten Alive in this movie. That like, hot house swampy Texas sensationalism, you know, all that that weird shit that you were getting in those movies. Like the the look of Salem's Lot, is pretty pretty old fashioned, you know. Uh, well, I think very you said unlike they, they were, his previous films.
2: Well, I think you said that they were really going for that for that New England vibe and nail on the head. I mean, that, that was. I think they knocked it out of the park with that.
1: Well, I think I think maybe he's also going for that classic horror movie vibe because he's using a right. classic horror vamp uh, monster in the vampire. You know.
2: Yeah. Well, and well, of
1: course, this is also being made very differently because mm. this is a com- unlike both of his previous films. This is a combination of both location in soundstage shooting what what i think is amazing about it is like the 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 absolute like the
0: parts that like execs you know studio execs i, I did air quotes there uh that would be uh most concerned with and i don't know why i did air quotes by the way because they are studio execs that's what they so, are yeah. you know so they're not quote studio execs uh anyway <laughs> the uh th- that is <laughs> Still calling back to my lack of ability to use air quotes. Um, <laughs> the uh, the things that are creepiest about this movie that I think would have impacted the youth of America watching this on national television in a miniseries are things like the fucking floating kid coming
1: through the window. That I'm yeah, like, yeah. that's goddamn creepy. That's pretty creepy. Yeah. Well, it- that's the thing. Uh, I think Hooper does manage to use like kind of the he gets around the limits of the format and and really creates some genuinely creepy moments and that's possibly the most memorable one Mm. is when little ralphie glick as a vampire floats into the bed his older brother's bedroom it's fucking creepy
2: yeah it really is. is and
0: and and you know what's funny is uh hearing him talk about it he says that like he spent a lot of time on the actors. Like he was trying really hard to be on the actors. And, and we talked about this before, but uh, Toby Hooper, by the way, if you, if you get a chance to get the Blu-ray, listen to the commentary. He talks a lot about this, just like playing with soul and stuff like that, that he, he would say, like, he, he, he admits it. It's the first time I've seen anything with him where he admits it. He's like, he's like, when I'm on set, sometimes I want people to be uncomfortable. So I get in a bad mood and I make sure that they know I'm in a bad mood. And I get, I get pissed off. We're behind. I get stressed. I got no time for anybody. And that makes them tense. It makes them sweaty. And he's like, and he's like, that's, that's part of what I do. Like he basically like outlines it. And uh, he's like, but for this, knowing what we're doing, we're doing this TV movie. I'm, I'm doing this a lot with these people. Like I'm working with the actors. Like I'm trying to make this happen. So then when we get to the part, the scene we're talking about, he says, like, I want to get a crane. I want to get like, develop a harness. Like, let's get this kid, like float him through the window and stuff. He's like, I could do this. And he's like the execs passed out notes that were like, you are on a tight schedule. You can't do this. Like, don't, don't do this scene. And uh, he said that he's like, no, I know exactly how to do this. Like, I'm I can do this part and uh and they just didn't believe in it they didn't believe it like what he said was like this practical stuff this magic effect magic tricks on camera he's like but I knew I could do it and he's like so I I just I did and he's like I convinced Cobert, said so they they, they he, he fought for me and we got it we got the harness we set it up we did the scene and stuff and he was like and then he was like it's funny from then on uh, constantly like the notes we got were like spend less time with the actors do more floating kid stuff <laughs>
1: <laughs> well it's funny like the, for those who who uh, couldn't visualize what Gary was saying as far as how they're making that kid float they're not using wires uh, which would kind of be the general way that people would do that because Hooper didn't like the look of wires. He thought they always—you could always tell when somebody was being hung from wires. So yeah, they took—they used a, a swing dolly, and uh, attached a harness to it, and the kids attached to that. So he's kind of floating more than being lifted. You know, right? Um, he is being lifted, but he's not being like lifted up by strings. And that's kind of how they made that effect work. And then they actually filmed it in reverse just to make it feel a little like more I,
2: eerie. I thought so. I was like,
1: yeah, you can see the the smoke like yeah. going backwards yeah but yeah. It, it adds a, a, a cool effect to the scene and I, it it holds up really well i think yeah, i think does. it plays really well yeah um the other scene that i love is the it, it might be my favorite scene in the entire movie if gary you know you, you like to do your what's your favorite movie moment of this yeah the floating yeah. vampires up there but the the other one the one for me i think my favorite movie moment in this is towards the end in the finale. I
0: know what you're going to say.
1: And, uh, but but before I describe it, I I will say that I feel like a lot of the movie feels pretty kind of chaste compared to Hooper's other work. But it also, once you get to the finale, you're like, this is what Hooper made this movie for, Mm. for this last act in the Marston house. Like this feels like a Toby Hooper movie that, that house feels a bit like the Sawyer residence from Texas chainsaw. You know, there's like, there's, Taxidermied animals and fucking antlers everywhere and bones and shit. Like everything's covered in an inch of dust. It's a pretty amazing from a production design standpoint, but it it really is way grimier than you would like expect from a network production network TV production. Yeah. But it's, I, I, it does feel like Hooper the entire movie, he was just waiting to get to like the last 40 minutes of this movie to just get into that grungy dingy place yeah anyway and, uh
0: the the guy he uses there uh Mort um, rabinowitz yeah maybe that's it yeah okay so yeah he he talks about him and i, I lost his name but he he says that you know he loved like the Marston house is he said if you want to if you want to compare it the house that rhett butler and scarlett o'hara build in god with the wind He's like it is. It is that house. Like the interior <laughs> yeah, is is okay. designed
1: completely around that. That's crazy. That's so funny. So anyway, <laughs> back to my my favorite moment in this uh, the cl- the climax of the film is it, okay. There's this sort of makeshift mausoleum like in the basement of the house, and I think this is partially why Cobert's decision to move the finale to the Marson house as opposed to the book's boarding house is kind of genius. Uh, but in this mausoleum are all of Barlow's victims and there's this moment where you see them in the background and like the darkness of this crawl space slightly out of focus and their eyes are glowing and they're crawling uh through the muck and it is chilling and yeah. just dreadful and i think it should honestly be counted among like the great horror movie moments it is a an incredible moment and Bro, it's so when, creepy
0: when that kid is leaning against the wall jeffrey lewis is like Crawling towards him, like in that open doorway, that's yeah. legitimately yeah. fucking terrifying.
1: <laughs> yeah. It is, it is.
0: It, oh. <laughs> <laughs> he like barely sees him in time and closes the door when yeah. they're trying to kill Barlow. It's like, no, that's that's on TV. Like that would yeah. have ruined my life. <laughs> like that would. Have, oh, yeah. I can see why. I mean, even to this day, I can see why that that works like that 100% works because
2: he's he's pretty far back and starts moving around like i mean he's crawling towards him for a while and it and i mean closer he gets that higher the tension gets it's just like oh man
1: yeah it's really i have to say that if the film has a flaw it's i think the pacing of it uh, especially as a two-part miniseries because it's not that big a deal now because uh I think the only version of this that most of us have access to is the three hour edit where it's edited as a single movie. Yeah. But in 1979, you're watching this over the course of like two nights a week apart that first half, the first two hours or what would, you know, would have been two hours with commercials. The first half is a bit of a slow build. Uh, it's, it's it's all important stuff. It's character building. You, you're learning the people in the town but there's really not any vampire stuff hardly until maybe the last like five or 10 minutes of that first half, Mm. you know? And then it ends at the part where um, the little kid in where they're in the graveyard and the little kid vampire bites the guy. And then it goes to like a freeze frame. That was the end of part one, but then the second half. Okay. So you watch that and there was enough vampire shit at the in the end of that two hours to get you wanting to watch the next week. Then the next week, wall-to-wall vampire shit like (laughs) the entire (laughs) second half Uh, and obviously the fact that the first half doesn't have as much vampire stuff didn't keep people from watching the second half because as we discussed this was a major success and such a big rating success that CBS actually considered developing an ongoing Salem's Lot TV series which I think it actually lends itself to pretty well I think that's actually a really good idea
2: yeah yeah I think that would have worked
1: i'd be curious to see that international cut that was released in in european theater so that's like an hour shorter because i imagine it doesn't run into that that same pacing issue yeah it's (laughs) weird i mean one of the things i
0: love about it is like i i don't know when i watched it i i didn't feel i only felt the length of it so much just because i had to pee at certain (laughs) points but uh other than that, like I was kind of into it. Like I, I i dug the atmosphere and the uh just the feel of the whole movie. And maybe that's just my lot in life. Like, I just well, there's also those little like early. side
1: stories that do keep you engaged, even when it's they don't involve vampires, you know. Yeah, and,
0: and he I mean Toby clearly he, he cared about the characters and and enough so that you also cared about it. He also cared about uh again this is you know just just from seeing some stuff of him talking about it just the idea of he cares about keeping you engaged he doesn't want to reveal too much at the beginning yeah he 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 believes in that the more you have to think about it the more that you are involved in it as opposed to like you've you see everything and then it just like you can check out check in and out with whatever so he definitely has that philosophy of like if I show you Barlow now then you know it is what it is but like if I make you think about what Barlow is like what he could look like who he is like why how is he impacting the who, who could possibly be doing this thing it, it means you're engaged that you're at least thinking about that yeah, stuff yeah.
1: Well, I would like to, to propose a new. We like little our little segments on this show. Uh, I'd, I'd like to propose a new segment where we get Todd's opinion, called Todd's Take, <laughs> where because oh boy, <laughs> I just, uh, I'm just curious. I'm just curious. Does he need to come before or after? Who needs a nap? I don't know. Maybe oh, Daring. Oh man. <laughs> Maybe Daring. It's hard to say, but uh, let's go ahead and since we've already talked about it, let's go ahead and do it now, and then we'll get into see who needs a nap. But Todd, let's hear your take.
2: Sure. To be you got, honest, you got two I'm,
1: minutes. You're being timed.
2: Okay. You, you guys. <laughs> not really. I,
1: <laughs> just, just talk. I'll give a shit. No, I
2: think uh, <laughs> I think there was a big thought between the two of you that I was not going to dig this. Well, you don't Um, like
1: anything so far that we've talked about with Toby. (laughs) That was a (laughs) a pretty good bet on our part.
2: That's fair. Um, But I actually did kind of dig this. Yeah. I felt the pacing a little bit. Uh, I mean, you know, three, three hour plus is a long time to ask anybody to sit and, you know, and not move. But, uh, to be honest, I I feel like it could have benefited from a little, from a little trimming, a little extra polishing off of some, some of those, uh, longer takes I mean but I mean all that character stuff is is important for you to care about these people and I think I've mentioned that with I think I mentioned that in the first two uh, chapters of the Toby Hooper series that I didn't really feel super connected to any of those characters totally felt more connected to these characters um yeah I you know the TV miniseries you know tends to suffer or at least it did uh probably around this period of time tends to suffer from the tv production so it looks flatter like you said um but i didn't really get a lot of that with this i felt like you know him you know using uh modern filmmaking you know modern at the time uh filmmaking techniques really really helped this uh project to you know flesh it out and make it It wasn't in 3D, but to make it three dimensional, quote unquote, three dimensional in that, you know, it felt like a real world. It felt lived in and it felt like felt like this was, you know, could potentially be really happening. I actually dig vampire movies. I I love the, you know, the history and the mythology and all that stuff behind it, uh, unless it's Twilight. That was what I was going to ask Gary was, you know, did Jen watch this and, you know, with her with her fondness of twilight what she thought but in terms of what i i dig this this is cool it's it, it, yeah it's a little long but honestly it's pretty solid it's a really solid movie
0: jennifer watched this she was uh, fine with this movie she she likes this movie too she probably would land in you with in you would land with you
2: you'll have to ask cat uh, first oh uh
0: <laughs> she would probably she would probably land with you she likes this more than uh well it's like you know we talked about before like with Texas Chainsaw like that's an uncomfortable movie uh she seemed to not give a shit about eating alive and with this movie like she digs it like there's a vibe about this one this was feels really late 70s early 80s it's just got that
1: it does yeah
0: it's got that atmosphere about it yeah, it's just it works sure. that way so she she's cool with it. She's just more forgiving than us. Is part of the problem. So she likes Twilight. Uh, so <laughs> it's just, yeah. So anyway, no. I, I I the the pacing thing for me is like I guess going into it, knowing that it was a TV miniseries, I just expected it to be long, right. but nothing about it
1: felt off for me with how long it went even even when you edit the two halves together like they work it works very well as a single 3 hour film i
0: think there are certain things like don't get me wrong i'm not just like blowing this movie there 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 are things about it that like yeah i think the weird shot of like the kid biting uh what's his uh jeffrey lewis's neck when he falls on the coffin and like it just like freeze frames and like closes in on it and stuff like that yeah. some
1: of that's kind of cheesy well yeah, that, a, that oh, was yeah. the end of that first half so then you know it would have cut done that and then credits and you know yeah but there's some of that, that stuff though that doesn't times? work for it as a movie it doesn't it, it doesn't it during commercial breaks on a couple of other occasions yeah okay yeah there's some of that and
0: you know, like the the first real time you get to hang out with Barlow and he like bangs the kid's parents' heads together. It's just kind of (laughs) like, it's relaxed. It's like, like, it is a little (laughs) slapsticky. Yeah. You're like, dude, you, you made Texas chainsaw. Like, you know how to do this better (laughs) than this, but I guess he's just kind of pulling back a little, but then I stand by the fact that there are the scenes, like the kid floating through the window and, uh, the crawling towards the open doorway—that I'm just like, God dang, this is creepy now, yeah. much less in 1979 or whatever. Like this, I is- gotta,
2: I gotta imagine that the list of possible killing scenarios for Barlow to be to kill the two, the two parents. I gotta imagine that list w- must have been really long, and then there's well. And like the studio or executives kept, sh- you know, shooting stuff down of like, oh, standards and practices isn't going to go for that. Uh, they're not going to go for that one either. And then somebody was just like, well, why don't we just have them bang their heads together? Like, yeah, it's why don't we just this
1: is a uh, three stooges thing? And yeah, Cooper. <laughs> was sad about that is and he could have like just done you know, it off screen. Guys, I am going to do that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> What's even crazier is that, like, he could have done it off screen. Is the thing that Toby yeah, Hooper is true. like really great about? <laughs> like, he could have just been like made a crunching sound or something and not shown yeah. anything and it would have probably worked. Like he's very skilled at that sort of thing. Like with Texas Chainsaw, you don't see anybody just like completely get gutted in the middle of the movie, but you fucking know it happened. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, well, Gary, I, I do have to wonder what some, uh, modern day internet, you know, crit- we'll call them film critics, <laughs> modern day <laughs> film critics on the internet Uh, have had to say about this because this feels like one that maybe there are going to be some haters out there
0: there are there are definitely some haters and uh there are some people that uh have like decently just like well thought out reviews of it and that sort of thing but you know a lot of people love stephen king so as you can expect if somebody reads stephen king and then they watch this movie well then somebody's gonna need a nap (laughs) All right, Uh, so let's go with, uh, I love that a lot of these people just like really went out on their usernames. Like they they really just fucking nailed it. Here's Stanley Strangelove. Uh, (laughs) He says, the title of his review is, drive a stake through this one. Salem's Lot is one of Stephen King's better books, but this film sucked all the life from it. Much like most of the other adaptations of King's novels, Salem's Lot by Toby Hooper is terrible to the point of almost being unwatchable. Why the great <laughs> James Mason would want to be in this inferior production is beyond knowing. David Soul and Bonnie Badia are strictly lightweight actors. They can't carry a film. Salem's Lot, the novel was creepy, neo-gothic. It was a work about vampires. Salem's Lot. The film is a dull, neo-stupid example of film vapidness. Hooper has never made a good film in his career, and Salem's Lot is just another example of his cinematic incompetence. My rating, total dud.
2: Total I- dud out of 10.
1: Love. Total dud out of 10. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Worst whorey. Oh, Hoary. <laughs> Worst. <laughs> <laughs> worst
0: a- horror movie ever from Bill the Butcher two three one. Bill
1: the Butcher two three one. It's actually Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> <It's Daniel Day-Lewis. laughs> <It's> actually- <laughs> That's, That's a screen name. Oh God! Without a doubt, this
0: has been the worst, most stupidly, ridiculously cliche, laughable horror movie I have ever seen.
2: This is in all um, caps.
0: Emphasizing this, it, it ever was in all caps. Seed had six exclamation points afterwards. Ah. <laughs> well, obviously, that line sums up what the rest of this review is like. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm a big fan of Stephen King and his adapted movies like Rose Red, The Shining, Pet Cemetery. A lot of people thought Pet Cemetery was crap, but any horror movie, even Hollow Man, is better than this.
2: Wow. Ooh. <laughs> to
0: start with, <laughs> the vampires look so fake that I laughed. When I saw the first one, to be honest, me and my friend laughed through the entire movie. The horror in this movie is also laughable. Like when you see the hand come up, the camera freezes and zooms up on it. How tacky. The final vampire is the funniest because he is a blue rat looking thing. (laughs) One scene a lot of people on the IMDB have been saying was the scariest, was actually, you guessed it, the funniest. The blue rat guy appears in a guy's prison cell and goes "woah, wah, I cracked up. I told my friend that we should have turned it off. Anyway, this movie entertained me because it was so hopelessly stupid and it should be classified as a comedy. It's the worst horror movie ever. Prime time, zero out of ten. Terrible. Prime time. He he wrote that.
1: He wrote well, all the cats, fact that the first- worst horror movie ever. Period prime time okay there are, there are two moments in that review that I immediately question this guy's taste one is that the first Stephen King adaptation he mentions is Rose red which is a, a a not an adaptation it was an original screenplay but very odd one to bring up and also of all the horror movies you could have compared this to <laughs> in all of the history of cinema you brought up hollow man <laughs> <laughs> even hollow man
0: all caps uh seven exclamation points after it i got two more let's keep going uh travis t says i would not recommend this movie to anyone for any reason this is from amazon this is a verified purchase he bought this movie this was such a disappointing movie it has run time of three hours which is long to begin with but when you added the fact that the characters have no development at all The movie seems to jump from scene to scene with no real reasoning or explanation for why there was a scene change with absolutely no setup. The whole movie felt like the director had no real idea how to start or end a scene and just started and ended scenes with no fluidity whatsoever. I would also like to mention that I have read the book on which this adaptation is based on. Most people who read the book and then watch the movie find the movie to be terrible. Not specifically in regards to this movie but movies in general. I found the movie to actually be better because I had read the book first. The reason being, if I had read the book first, I would be quite confused during a lot of the scenes because the directing and writing for a good amount of the scenes is so horrendous. It is very difficult to even understand what or why something is happening without the context of the book. I understand that I sound like one of those annoying people who can't stop berating a movie just because the book is so much better, but I really don't mean to come off that way. I can truly say that this movie is actually worse if you don't read the book first, which is almost never the case when dealing with book-to-movie adaptations. I don't ever really review movies, so this might not be totally well-written, but I hope people get the idea This movie, it's beyond trash. If you find the premise of this movie intriguing, I would recommend the book. And if you can't be bothered to read the book, then I would opt out of reading the film's plot summary on Wikipedia. But it's more thrilling than this movie. (laughs) (laughs) I tried to give that like a sympathetic voice. All right, one more, and I swear I'll stop. Paul Pichula, his title for this review is, all caps, no stars. And I want you to know when I get excited towards the end, the last half of this review is in all caps. <laughs> I kind of forgot about my boogie shoes and cocaine. Of course, I was just 13 or so when this movie came out. You see, there were a few things happening at this time. And unfortunately, David Soul, in between giving some hair raising punishment to his wife on a regular basis, he had time to make movies. Now, I don't hate David Soule. I remember to this day watching his start of his career on a drive-in screen in Dirty Harry. Or one of those Eastwood, or it was one of those Eastwood movies. He was riding a police motorcycle. Anyway, now then I'm sure in between beatings of his girlfriends, he was getting lots of offers to do different movies and stuff. Unfortunately, he accepted doing this movie. And it took me a while to figure it out. And here's how it went. Director says, Okay, I want to see soul walking in those nice belt bottom jeans so I won't bore you with any more. But thanks to Starsky and Hutch, he was pretty much right. And then the people at that time knew that you delivered a pretty good right hook to your gal. Well, this was a plus. It was street cred for the time. Jesus, this makes me feel even older. So I would recommend seeing this if you really want to see severe action like David Soul walking from his car to the real estate office. Because that's about as good as this shit gets. It goes downhill from there. I watched this idiotic movie for exactly one hour and three minutes at which time the action had heated to its peak. As the first dark scenes began, I just couldn't take it anymore. Don't waste eighteen dollars like I did. My son was seven when he saw this. That was sleeping in no time. I told him this was a dope movie. I <laughs>
2: <laughs> was that Charlie Brown trying to kick the football at the end. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was legit. The review.
2: Wow. <laughs> he <is. laughs> Wow. And it sounded. It, it
0: sounded. I, I. I sound incomprehensible. I'm re- I'm just. Directly reading this review, he sounds
1: like oh, not like he needs a nap, but also maybe a chill pill. <laughs> I was
2: gonna say <laughs> medication <some> <Jeez. laughs>
1: Oh man! Well, regardless, this is often maybe not by these people, but by many, is often considered one of kind of the all-time great vampire movies. It's been cited as the influence from everything from *Fright Night* to *The Lost Boys* to *Buffy the Vampire Slayer*. Uh, Brian Fuller, the guy who created Hannibal, he has discussed its influence. Uh, He did an episode of the King cast. It's a really good podcast about Stephen King movies. Uh, He was on there a couple months ago. And he said that the scene where the character is impaled on, on deer antlers there towards the end, inspired him to do a similar scene in Hannibal because the original scene had freaked him out so much as a kid. And then Salem's lot inspired a sequel as well. Uh, In 1987, Larry Cohen, which, if you remember, was one of the filmmakers attached to the film before Hooper was involved. He directed a movie called Return to Salem's Lot. And I got to tell you guys, I watched it last night and it is certainly a Larry Cohen movie. It has absolutely (laughs) nothing to do. I mean, it is set in in Jerusalem's Lot and there are vampires, but uh, it, it has no relationship to the King novel or really there aren't any like characters from this movie in it. But um, it's got Michael Moriarty doing that weird thing that he always does in Larry Cohen movies, and it's got some pretty fun uh, gore and creatures that there, there are there are blue vampires in it that kind of look like Barlow, but they're kind of um, they're big prosthetic, like rubbery mask looking. I don't know. You should watch it. It's it's really weird, and it once again it ends spoiler, but in the the town of Salem's Lot burning down. Which doesn't does that happen in this
2: movie? Well, they it's burned down, man, down the house. The house
1: down, yeah, the house. Anyway, down. Um, it's it's worth checking out. It was n- it was not like a miniseries. It's a regular movie, and I think it got like a like a small limited theatrical release. But it was basically straight to video. You know, uh, anyway, if you like Larry Cohen, it's a, it's it's worth checking out. If you like his weird form of filmmaking, which I I personally do, so I enjoyed it, but. So then in 2004, another adaptation of the King novel aired as a two-part miniseries on TNT, this time starring Rob Lowe as Ben Mears and Donald Sutherland as Richard Straker and James Cromwell as Father Callahan. How about that? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and and <laughs> Rudger Hauer as Kurt Barlow, so obviously, uh, yeah, <laughs> so and they're doing the the thing where Barlow is more of like a, a count, you know, he's not like a monster. So yeah, that makes pa- sense. So I mean, you know. don't use Rudger Hauer if you're not going to use Rudger Hauer. <laughs> I read some stories about it where like Rudger Hauer uh, would have like he would show up and he had like like one day he showed up and had this big speech his character was supposed to get give, and he comes and instead decides he's going to do like the thing he did in Blade Runner where he's just going to make shit up on the spot. So he has this big soliloquy and he just starts talking about being a cowboy, which doesn't make any sense. He's a German (laughs) account who's been turned into a vampire. And then the director's like, all right, for the next take, can you just do the script? And he didn't know any of his lines. And they ended up, this is from a story that Rob Lowe told uh, in an interview. (laughs) So they ended up having to like hold uh, like, cards up off screen for Rutger Hauer to read for for his big speech. That is fucking nuts. (laughs) Didn't he also
0: do the uh, Argento Dracula? Wasn't that Rutger Hauer?
1: Mm, Yeah, I think he is in the Argento the Dracula 3D or whatever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wow. I mean, He kind of looks like a vampire. All right. Well,
0: yeah. I mean, I guess at a certain point, you just feel like you're Rutger Hauer and you're like, can do whatever the fuck you want. I'll say what I feel like saying. And then as
1: as recently as 2019, it was announced that a new theatrical film based on the novel would be made. Uh, They've got Gary Dauberman, who wrote it, chapter one and two, you know, and then James Wan producing. And Dauberman's actually been announced as a director. He was announced uh, last April, April 2020, that he'd be directing, which I don't know that he's ever directed. I think he's mostly a screenwriter. I believe this might be his first directing gig. But yeah, it seems like we've got another Salem's Lot on the way. So we'll see how that. That plays out, but it's a weird thing with like people that just really love
0: to romanticize the idea of vampires. And I feel like this is especially, you know, I don't know. Like It just felt like at the time, probably the biggest vampire you would have known was like, people would have known maybe Nosferatu, but Dracula is obviously the vampire of choice. Right. And there's a romanticism involving Dracula, just like how he acts. So it's a, it's a step I feel like to portray the vampire as just a monster and I think that Toby Hooper like leaned into that. Like in the beginning, I talked about like he just felt like Stephen King got more of what a vampire was, and even later, and, and maybe you were going to touch on this, but like it even seem like Stephen King got it. Like he he was he was kind of cool with what what Hooper did here. That the vampire is a parasite. Like it's a. Yeah it's a thing like it's more believable when it's a monster i mean i think this carries over to guys like guillermo de toro when they do things like the strain series and stuff yeah. like that i don't know if it, many people have watched that but that like i enjoyed that series and and it was very much like it's a virus and it's a it's a gross thing more than it's like uh yeah. you're a fancy pants dude who just like drinks blood and gets cool about it like it's a- yeah <laughs>
1: Uh, Yeah, you're right. Though Stephen King was a fan. I mean, this is often spoken of as like one of the better Stephen King adaptations. But Stephen King said that the movie exceeded his expectations for what they could get away with on television. He was a big fan of Hooper's version of the story. And as for Hooper, uh, the success of the miniseries really felt like the victory that he'd been waiting for after the disappointments of Eaten Alive and and The Dark not really happening. He said, "Is a quote." This is a quantum leap for me. It's a major studio production. I'm working with a fantastic cast and crew. And Cobert's is wonderful. This is a first for me. Also, Salem's Lot does not rely on the same kind of dynamics as Chainsaw. It is scary. It is atmospheric, but in a different way. And that last point is kind of notable because Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, is undoubtedly a masterpiece to most people. Except for one of our co hosts, but it's not a mainstream film, you know. It it's with by with this movie by successfully creating a polished studio backed film like Salem's Lot, Hooper showed that he could kind of work outside of the low budget exploitation fringe cinema world of Chainsaw and Eating Alive. The Salem's Lot is a traditional horror film, it was created to satisfy mainstream audiences who were staying at home to watch a movie on a Saturday night. That's a big jump from where he started and where he, his career seemed to be going by working with a significant budget, a professional crew, big name actors and a producer that knew what he wanted, Hooper proved that Texas Chainsaw was no fluke. He could deliver the goods. This guy was not like a one hit wonder. And so fans eagerly awaited what he would do next and what he would do next was a film that was kind of made to cash in on the then burgeoning slasher movie subgenre, but in typical you know Toby Hooper fashion, it he didn't get there without a few bumps in in the road along the way. Uh, but next week, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the story of that film, which is Toby Hooper's 1981 slasher movie, The Funhouse. Yeah, I can't. I, I was trying to like bounce it around in my head, like
0: what what's sad about Toby Hooper is that uh so far it's been like i just want to make movies like that's all i care about yeah. i just i just want to do that okay well it's not easy the uh to break through that glass ceiling that's not like a easy thing to do but i found if you do a niche like that's the way to go i'm going to create i mean i'm going to do a horror movie because like horror seems hot right now and then people were like, "He well, Toby goes and does a horror movie. And then people are like, fuck, man, that's fucked up. Like, <laughs> that's kind of cool. Like, you did it. Man, you fucked some people up. And all right, you come on to LA. All right, here you are. And then he makes Eatin' Alive. And people are like, man, dude, you need to calm the fuck down. Like, that's not <laughs> not, not not too much horror. Don't get yeah. weird. Don't get like, <laughs> crazy people
1: weird like like let's let's dial it back a little bit we like what you did but we don't want you to do it again yeah don't do that we, we want can can you somehow make that kind of money for us without doing that again right. <laughs> so he finally like lands like salem's lot
0: it's the first time it feels like for toby hooper he's just been like I on TV. I got to keep it cool. I got to keep it cool. But like, oh, I know a trick here and there and blah, blah, blah. And people are like, that's not going to work. Oh shit. That does work. <laughs> and like, you know, they're, they're cool with him a little bit, but let's balance this out. Like, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> That's uh maybe, maybe we're working, you know, the next thing you should do is a slasher movie. Cause that's, that's the shit. That's the that's shit. La- you got to do a slasher now, you know? And, and, and by the way, I mean, and everything I've seen of him, even at this point i mean he he just he talks about it in interviews like I, kn- I know when and where i got pigeonholed i know that i'm a genre filmmaker and it's not you know you talked about him being the most chill guy in the world so it's, it's like sad and and cool at the same time like he's just like you know i get it like it's
1: he's like it sounds you know, like
2: he wasn't disillusioned by anything like he had a firm grip of who he was and what he was doing, what he was making, what he enjoyed. And and as he went along, it seems like what people were willing to pay for. So, yeah.
0: Well, well, his thing was, is like, literally I saw an interview before we did this podcast where he talked about that. Like, it's not a bad job. I'm happy to have this job. Uh, You can switch what people think of you if you want to take like 25 years in between pictures, but if you want to make a living, if you want to do your job, like they're going to come to you when they know you can make this happen. And Mm.
1: that's what I, that's what I am. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of like that, that compartmentalization thing you talked about earlier. Like he always focused on just what movie needed to be made. He was never concerned with, like some filmmakers, the overall scope and how people are going to view your entire career. It was just all about the movie, what was being made right now, not what was being made later or what people are going to think about your legacy down the line. It was just about the next job. Well, it yeah.
0: it's so it's so funny. Like you you summarized it like that. And I and I we were kind of talking about that, but I think we even mentioned that on an earlier earlier episode where he just like he said, you know, to a fault, probably. A lot of directors look at these things like, as a whole, what am I doing? And he was just, what can I get hired for? This is my job. I'm going yeah. to do my best at this thing. Like you said, maybe to a fault. Didn't
1: always work out for him. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. But we'll we'll get back more into Toby Hooper's story next week. Uh, thank you for joining us for part three of The Tragedy of Toby Hooper Uh, if you want to follow along, if you want to watch the fun house along with us, head to cinemashock.net. We don't, you can't watch it there, but you can find links to where you can watch it legally. Uh, It's in streaming in a lot of places. So it should be pretty easy for you to find. It's also a really rad uh, shout factory, uh, Blu-ray of it out there that you can get for a pretty decent price. You can also follow the show at cinema underscore shock on Twitter and Instagram. Go uh, like us on Facebook, follow us everywhere and you know rate review and all that stuff share us with your friends and uh, you guys want to tell everyone where you can be found on the internet
0: share us with all of your friends i love your friends please share yeah. us we want them uh, to love us we need love, their love have them love us as much as we love you that's that's the real important thing i am that this is gary horn on everything and generally speaking i've earlier in the day i've consumed less alcohol so <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my tweets will be more coherent and i'll i'll give you like something from like marcus aurelius or something like that but then like later in the night you want to get me fired up about politics
1: or something else twitter wild you gotta get on there, <laughs> Derek, Gary. Did not get in. Did not get in political arguments on Twitter.
0: I, I try not to. Genuinely, it's a bad idea. <laughs> I try not to. But people always got something to bitch about on Twitter. No, no. I'm I'm generally happy on Twitter. I'm trying to talk about movies. And thank you guys who have sent in like kind words for real about uh what we're doing here and we're, we're trying to do deep dives into like all these cult movies and and we appreciate everybody who listens and and please if you're listening to this right now and uh you you enjoy what we're doing and you haven't said anything let us know let us know let us know what you want to hear let us know a series if you have an idea of something you want deep dives into yeah. we are so open to those those concepts we w- we want to hear what you got so yeah. anyway at uh cinema underscore shock. That's where you should send those.
1: Yeah.
2: Todd, how about you, man? Uh, you can follow me trying to be funny at uh at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all the socials. And I have a little uh Star Trek podcast that's just getting off the ground. And you can uh hit me up there at computer resume. It is the computer resume podcast. Uh for all things Star Trek for fans new and old. We're going through the entire franchise. Um so it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we're, like I said, we're just getting off the ground. So it's going to live and breathe and grow. It's going to be my little baby. And uh, <laughs> I think you're
0: going to get there in like a year and a half. If you're in the yeah. actual <laughs> Star Trek on. show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted Girls. to mention one other thing in, in, in the discussion of the movie that I forgot to mention. And I, I just want to throw this in real quick. Bob Birds who is the art, dire- art director for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, uh, Toby Hooper talks about in the scenes with the kid and his room and the models and stuff like that. I know this is out of nowhere. It's, I'm sorry, it's out of left field. But uh, it just hit me again that he was talking about, like Stephen King, this is how much Toby Hooper cared. In Stephen King's book, he talks about these revel models that this kid is working on of like horror and like planes and tanks and like whatever in his room. And they could not find them. Their production company couldn't find them. Any, anybody couldn't find them. So he called Bob Burns, who he had worked with on Texas chainsaw massacre and he knew Bob Burns liked models. And he asked him like, Hey man, like this book talks about these rebel models. Can you find them? he said, I don't know, Toby, let me look. Let me see what I can find. And he said that he waited like a week or two and uh, was going to call him back and got a package in the mail. And it was a huge box of Revel models all put together, ready to go. And it was from Bob Burns with a bill for $25. And uh, he said, this is the best, this is the best, production deal in hollywood history
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome
0: and i just thought that was really cool like he just he just wanted to put together some models man he was like "No, i
1: got a reason so pay me 25 bucks (laughs) that's fun (laughs) that's cool well i'm at justin underscore bishop (laughs) on twitter and instagram and letterbox are you guys updating your letterbox
0: i'm i'm doing terrible at it man i i I gotta really get on it it on the the to-do list
1: I'm trying to get people to just. I paid you guys. again
0: for another year of Letterboxd, and I'm just a still not...
1: You're a patron. That's like 50 bucks a year. Well, I, I switched it to like uh, pro. The, pro. The pro. That's I what switched I switched it to pro.
2: What's the benefit of pro?
1: You get pretty well, there much are the same some little stuff. tweaks, but. There are some little little things you can do, like clone lists and things like that, but it's mostly to help support them, honestly.
0: Yeah, I, I just mm-hmm. like the idea of, of Letterboxd existing, and I, I, I encourage everyone to fully support them. I got to get on it. I watch, I, I mean, I watch movies all the time. You <laughs> just log just them, be... like
1: Not everyone wants to write a review for every movie, but just log them and give them a star rating, you know? Yeah, that's fun. Well, I'm on there. I stay active on there, so. I'm you
0: at this scary horn on letterbox. You can find me, and people have been following me, and I appreciate that. And I am sorry that I have failed you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, until next week.
0: Texas Chainsaw Massacre has a 1.5 star rating from Todd. I just want, That's I true. Just want to throw
1: that out. It does. It does. 1.5 stars. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Todd gave it one point. <laughs> five stars hey todd we got some homework for you
2: oh boy what do do you got
1: top 10 horror movies of all time your top 10 horror movies your top 10 favorite horror movies or what you think are the 10 best horror movies of all time those are
2: two different lists so be be specific am i I I I I I getting or my favorites
1: I think, I think there
2: we,
0: is a series for this show that revolves around, like, Todd writing down, right now, what are your top ten favorite horror movies? Uh,
2: like, I'll
0: give you till next week
1: when we record next episode.
2: Okay, but... My favorites, or what I top think are the ten, top ten,
1: whatever the fuck you think top ten. God is. damn it! What right are it. your
2: favorite horror movies? Okay, my top ten favorite horror movies. Okay,
1: yeah,
0: and maybe maybe we can make a whole series out of what Todd's favorite horror movies
1: are, <laughs> and we can just run through. <laughs> that's those. your homework for next week. <sighs> okay, I kind of like that. I kind of <laughs> think that's fun. Let's yeah. see what it, what
0: what does it take to get Todd's goat. Like what? Is... <laughs> That's a Halloween reference. I don't know if you've seen that, Todd, but it's one of my. Favorite Halloween. <laughs> That's a good one. God, it, it should be on your list, but we don't know if it will be. Oh man. Anyway, until next week, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather, and be excellent to each other.
2: Johnny has the keys. Give them to the master. <laughs>
1: I fucking hate this. I hate
2: all of it. <laughs> all right. Deal with it. Hey, if you're gonna give me homework assignments, you gotta deal with Johnny At the Key.